Hey, my name's Lachlan. I'm one of the pastors here. It's been quite a month, hasn't it? Uh, I wonder if over the last month you've caught up on some movie watching, uh, perhaps the Netflix, the Prime Video, whatever your, your poison is. And the last decade really has been a resurgence for the superhero movie, you know? You're a Marvel person or a DC person. I know I was one of those people that rushed out to see the final Avengers movie, and it was good. It was worth it. Uh, even apart from superheroes, though, our stories, our movies, our books, our history, it is full of people that we call heroes. It makes you wonder, why do we love these hero stories so much? Well, the great storyteller Mark Twain, he answers, Our heroes are men who do things which we recognise with regret and sometimes with a secret shame that we cannot do. We find not much in ourselves to admire. We are always privately wanting to be like somebody else. If everybody was satisfied with himself, there would be no heroes. I think there's some truth in that. But I think we can go a step further. As we experience our life, it comes to us like we're part of a big story. And in our story, we need a hero. The past few weeks, we've looked at the problem the dire need that we are all in as humanity, both collectively and individually. Remember the problem? The story starts with a God who has made us, who we have then rejected. And as a result of our rebellion against God, we stand rightly under his anger. All of us, you, me, every human on the face of the planet, we're all staring down the barrel of death, judgment, and hell. If ever anyone needed a hero, someone to come and save them, it's us. Who is going to save us? Now, the secular society around us uh, just tries to deny the problem. They say, you're feeling guilty? Why are you feeling guilty? Just accept yourself. You haven't done anything wrong. Uh, But I tell you, if someone uh, murders someone else and turns up in court saying, what's the problem? I'm happy with myself. I'm pretty happy with what I've done. That doesn't go down well, does it? Self-acceptance is not a solution to the problem of our guilt before God. So who will save us? Who's going to be our hero? Well, different religions step in and say, it's you. You can save you. Just follow these rules, do enough good things, and that's going to outweigh the bad. And some people even think that this is how Christianity works. That Christianity says, well, yeah, you're guilty before God, so you just need to try harder. Here's the Ten Commandments. Keep them. They're like a ladder that you can climb up, and if you do them enough, you'll, you'll end up getting to God. You'll be okay. It's kind of like doing some community service to pay off the penalty that you deserve. Sometimes that's pitched as a halfway thing. You know, God comes in, and he, He's going to help you. He'll give you the energy. He'll support you. But in the end, with his help, you can be good enough to work off your sin. I want you to hear really clearly today, that is not the message of Christianity. That is not the message of Jesus. As we wallow in the guilt of our rebellion against God, Jesus comes along and he says, you cannot save yourself, but I can and I will. See, I think we love hero stories because at the center of our lives, is a big hero story, the true hero story, where Jesus steps in with immense self-sacrifice to save us. 
Jesus is your hero who has heroically sacrificed himself to save you from hell. How has he done that? Well, here's the big point for today. Jesus died in our place to take our punishment. Jesus died in our place to take our punishment. This is the core teaching of the Bible. Everything written before Jesus' death is written in a way that points forward to it, to illustrate it and preempt it and prepare us for it. Everything written after the point of Jesus' death looks back to it to help further explain it and how we should live in response to it. Jesus' death is the central teaching of the Bible as he dies in our place, taking our punishment. And so we're going to flick around the Bible a bit today, seeing a range of different passages that teach this. But come with me, first of all, to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. In the book of 1 Peter, Peter's writing to some people who are suffering, and he says this of Jesus. Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. Let's walk through that verse bit by bit. The first thing we see there is that Christ suffered for sins. Jesus suffered and died, and the reason he suffered and died was for sins. Now, you might remember from last week, death is the result of sin. So logically, right, if there's no sin, then there's no death. And so when we read here in 1 Peter 3 that Jesus died for sins, is that just saying that Jesus suffered because he sinned, like the rest of us? It's not saying that. So have a look at the next bit. Christ suffered for sins once for all. There's something unique, something final about Jesus' death. It was a one-time event, never to be repeated, with a lasting impact. What was so special about it? Well, the next bit's key. Christ suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. Now, righteous means innocent. Someone who's righteous before God is someone who doesn't deserve any punishment. They're in the right with God. And that describes Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect life. There was no moment of his life, no thought, no word, no action where he rebelled against God. He lived his whole life as we should have, in perfect submission to God's will, always following God's way. A page earlier in 1 Peter chapter 2, we read this about Jesus. Jesus did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. So Jesus was a righteous man, a completely innocent man. His life was defined by a posture of saying to God, his father, not my will, but yours be done. And so logically, if Jesus hasn't sinned, then Jesus didn't deserve to die. You get that? If Jesus died for sins, as this passage says, then it wasn't his own sins that he died for. He hadn't committed any. Instead, this was an innocent man dying for us who are guilty. The righteous one, Jesus, dying for the unrighteous, you and me. The language that Christians have used to describe this is that Jesus died as our substitute. You know how a substitute works, don't you? A substitute is someone who comes in to take your place, who steps in to do the thing that you were meant to do. So if you're watching the rugby game and there's a front rower who gets tired or perhaps gets injured, they bring someone off the bench. 
a substitute who comes in and fills the role of that front rower, you know, locking the scrum in. They need to be substituted for their role. Or if you get rusted onto a shift at work and for some reason you can't do it, well, you need a substitute, someone who can come in to cover your work shift, someone who can do the work that you were meant to do. Now, those are quite petty examples of substitution compared to how Jesus substitutes for us. Jesus isn't coming on to fill out some game time for us. Jesus isn't coming in to fill in a shift at work for us. Jesus comes in as our substitute to pay the penalty for our sin. While you and I are sitting here deserving death, deserving judgment, deserving hell, Jesus comes along and says, I'll take it for you. I'll take your death. I'll take your judgment. I'll take your hell. Listen to how Peter describes it in chapter 2, verse 24. It says of Jesus, He himself bore our sins on the tree. Jesus carried our sins. And he carried them to his death on a wooden cross where our punishment was paid in full. That's amazing, yeah? And because of Jesus' death, we can now come back into that right relationship with God that we were made for. That's the final piece of 1 Peter 3 verse 18. It says, Christ suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. The result of Jesus' death is that we can come back into that relationship that God made us for. And this brings us to another word that's been important for Christians in thinking about Jesus' death. It's the word atonement. Atonement means that we can be at one with God again. Our fractured relationship with us, dishonouring God, committing treason against His rightful rule, that alienation from God that led to our, our sickness and suffering and hostility that relationship is restored, reconciled, at one. And if we put all this together, we get a phrase that helps describe Jesus' death, penal substitutionary atonement. It sounds complex, doesn't it? But if you look at each of the words, we've just explained what they mean. A penal, it's to do with penalty and punishment. Substitutionary, well, Jesus is our substitute. He steps in to take the penalty that we deserve atonement. By dying in our place, we can come back to God as our maker to live with him. That's precisely what Jesus came to do. Back in Mark's gospel, we find Jesus teaching about his purpose. Mark 10 verse 45, Jesus says, the son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to give his life. He came to die for you and for me as a ransom, the price that we owed as a result of our rebellion. This is what Christianity is about. This is why a symbol of Jesus' death, a cross, has become so pervasive as a symbol of Christianity. You see, Jesus didn't come just to show us a better way that we could love one another, to kind of help us care for the poor. Jesus didn't come to teach us the rules that we can live by in order to please God. Jesus certainly didn't come to help us achieve our true potential. That's just the secular message dressed up in Christian clothing. We didn't need an example. We didn't need a moral teacher. We didn't need a life coach. We needed a hero, a savior, a deliverer, a rescuer. We needed someone to deal with the punishment we deserve. And that, that is what Jesus has done. 
Jesus has died in our place, taking our punishment. Now, this truth is so relevant for our day-by-day lives, isn't it? So what do you do when you're faced with feelings of your guilt and God's wrath? I trust you do feel that at times. You do things, you think things, you say things, you feel that sense of guilt. Well, what do you do at that point? We can't run away from God. Sometimes we try that, don't we? We just try to run away and get away from God and get away from those feelings. But God is the all-present, infinite one. He'll be anywhere that you run to. You might try to drown out those feelings of guilt with constant busyness, constant entertainment, maybe drinking alcohol, taking drugs to drown out those feelings of guilt. But that's just a delaying tactic, isn't it? We've gotten quite good at it recently, but ultimately it's, it's an unhelpful way of dealing with the realities of our heart and our situation before God. And many people turn to religion to deal with their guilt. They do their religious duties, pray their prayers, they give to charity, hoping against hope that it's going to be enough, that they'll achieve enough to be saved. Many churchgoers, you might have been at church with us for five years and you think that this is how Christianity works, you know. I'll put my name down on the rosters, I'll turn up to warm the seat at church and then maybe, just maybe, I'll be good enough to earn my get out of hell free card. That just leaves you in a spiral of despair, leading to pride, leading to even deeper despair. So instead of those options that don't work, Jesus' death for us invites us to honestly and openly confess our guilt to God, turn back to Him and receive forgiveness. So have you ever had that feeling in a human relationship where you really know that you've hurt someone badly? You acutely feel that sense of hurt. You you can't believe that you've done it. You feel so sorry, so apologetic. You might even spend some time crying just because you feel so deeply how much you've hurt this person. I wonder if you can think of a time where you felt that. Now, isn't it just such an amazing feeling when you go to that person and, and you apologize to them and they extend forgiveness to you? It can be almost unbelievable. You're so caught up in the, the sadness struggle to to realize that they've actually forgiven you. It's an amazing feeling. And that's the Christian feeling before God. We feel the weight of sadness at the way that we've treated our God. We cry our tears of guilt as we, we recognize how much we've offended Him, shamed Him, hurt Him. And then those tears turn to joy when we hear that He has forgiven us, that our sin is dealt with. So when you're feeling guilty, don't don't try to run away from God in your guilt. Don't try to drown it out. Don't turn to religion. Instead, we'll we'll hear these wonderful words from 1 John chapter 1 that describe the Christian response. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Don't run away from God in your guilt. Don't drown it out. Don't turn to religion. Come to Jesus. Come through Jesus to God, asking for forgiveness, confessing that sin. Jesus' death in our place gives us that confidence to come and confess our sin and know that we will be forgiven. This movement of confession is not just a one-time thing when you first become a Christian. 
No, this is the daily rhythm of the Christian life. Each day we stumble in sin and each day we find fresh mercy from God. You see, even if you've been a Christian for 50 years, you are no less deserving of hell at that point than on the first day you became a Christian. In fact, after 50 years of Christian life, you're probably much more deeply aware of how much you deserve God's punishment. The Christian life is a journey of becoming more and more appreciative of Jesus as you become more keenly aware of the depth of your sinful heart. And so through Jesus, we we come back to God each day and say, thank you. Help me to live today with you as my king. It might be that you haven't said that to God for a while. Perhaps you've fallen into thinking as a Christian that you've made it, that the way you're now living your life is sufficient. Please search your heart, examine your ways, ask God to show you your sin, that you might glory more in his grace. We, We never make it as Christians. Even as a pastor, I'm not sitting here today as if I've made it. I'm in a daily battle at the moment, a hard battle against the pride of my heart. I still deserve hell today. Christians don't make it in that sense. We're always growing, always changing, always putting sin to death. The Christian life is a life of continual gratitude for God's continual forgiveness of us. Well, that's the big point for today. Jesus died in our place to take our punishment. But there are a couple of things that have to be true about Jesus for that statement to make sense. Perhaps you've been thinking them as you've been hearing this. You've gone, there's something that doesn't quite fit there. And we need to get a couple of other truths for this to be just and sensible. So I want to make sure we're clear on those. Here's a second truth for you that helps to make sense of that first one. Jesus is the God-man. A little bit of a weird phrase, we'll unpack it. Jesus is the God-man. He is both truly God and truly human. See, for Jesus' death to be effective, an effective substitute for the sin of the world, he can't just be an ordinary, innocent man. One man's death perhaps might be sufficient as a substitute for one other person, but not for the whole world. There's just one human life. And if Jesus is just an ordinary human, then isn't this whole thing pretty unfair of God? God making an innocent third party pay, that that doesn't work logically. Uh, Let me try to explain this a little bit more. There was a night, I remember it well, I was driving home from a hard day in the city uh, and I stopped somewhat suddenly at a pedestrian crossing and I felt a car come and hit me up the back. You know, it was a Domino's delivery driver. He was in a rush. He hadn't seen me stop. It was an accident. It was frustrating. The result of it was that my car got a bit damaged. I couldn't close the boot anymore because of the way it had been kind of distorted in its shape. And my car needed fixing. That was going to cost some money. The young guy who (laughs) ran into me, he could pay for it. You know, he, he wasn't too happy about doing it, but, you know, I could get him to pay for it. Uh, Or I could choose to be merciful and pay to get my car fixed myself. Either of those would work. Either of those would be logical. But if I just walked out into the street and kind of stopped some other random car that was coming past and said, oh, hey, look, this guy's just run up the back of my car, needs a bit of fixing. I want to be kind to him, so I don't want him to pay. I'm going to make you pay for it. That doesn't work, does it? 
it's just a random guy driving past. He's innocent in this. He hasn't been involved. There's, there's nothing fair in me making someone else pay for it. And in what sense could that possibly be me showing kindness to the young guy that's run into me? I'm just lumping the cost onto an innocent passerby. If we come back to Jesus' death, if Jesus is just a human, then his death for me is similarly unfair, isn't it? He's just an innocent passerby. He hasn't been involved in this. He, he should just be saved himself, not substituting in for me. And so this is where we see through the lens of Jesus' death that Jesus is not just a human. Jesus is himself God, truly God. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 19 says, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Or in John 3 verse 16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God isn't lumping the penalty for our sin onto some uninvolved third party. God's paying out of his own pocket. God is counting the cost himself that we might be forgiven. Now to do that, God had to become a man. Not in some pretend way, not like he just put on a mask to pretend for a little while that he looked like a man. No, for Jesus to substitute, for Jesus to be a substitute for humanity, he had to be truly human. We read about this in Hebrews chapter 2. It says, Since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these. He had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. Now, there's that key word, atonement, again. Remember what that means? Making at one, fixing up our relationship. For God to make atonement, he has to be like us, human. It was as humans that we sinned against God. It's a human penalty that we deserve to pay. And so we need a human substitute to pay for us. And so, what a profoundly wild truth this is. God became human. God got small. This is an unimaginable sacrifice. If you or I decided to move from the most perfect paradise to the darkest of dungeons, that wouldn't even begin to approach what God did here. Stooping down, getting low, humbling himself in human flesh. God did that for us, for our salvation. Now, this Jesus that we're talking about here, this is not the Jesus of Islam, who was just a human. This is not the Jesus of Mormonism, who's some kind of angelic being. This is not the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Jesus of the New Age. Those are all very different stories. What I'm describing is the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus of history. Jesus, who is not just a God, but the God. Jesus is the man who God became. As the God-man, only as the God-man, Jesus could die in our place. Here's the way that Greg Kokel puts it in a recent book called Story of Reality. He says, Man owed a debt to God and man must pay. Yet what kind of person could make a boundless payment to cover an endless punishment, a penalty due for the sins of an entire world? A human must pay the price for sin, but only God is able. 
The gap between man and God must be bridged and that can only be done by the God-man. As one has said, for in giving his son, he was giving himself. Not a God far off, over there, out of reach, completely other. God near, God here, Emmanuel, God with us. God came down. Isn't that stunning? (laughs) The God who made all things with a word came down and died for you, died for me. While we were still shaking our puny fists in his face, rebelling against his rightful rule, he died for us. That's amazing love. And it inspires in Christians just an overflow of joy. How precious is Jesus' death when you recognize not just what it achieves for you, but who it is that died for you. The immortal, eternal, infinite, divine shed his blood for you because of your sins. This is why Christians love to sing. This is why we have to put our truths into song because of the joy that just overflows at this amazing truth. One such song written 300 years ago by a man named Charles Wesley. He was stunned by these truths and he wrote a song called And Can It Be? You might have heard it before. Here's the first verse. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me. That we would so grasp the depth of the reality of Jesus' death for our sins that we might turn from our sins every day and rejoice with an inexpressible and glorious joy. The God-man Jesus died in our place to take our punishment and bring us forgiveness. Let me pray. Lord God, Give us words to express the wonder of the death of Jesus. It is so amazing. In his death, you've displayed your justice in that the penalty for sin was paid. And you've displayed your mercy in that we who are sinners don't have to pay that penalty ourselves. You are just and you're merciful in full measure. In Jesus' death, you've taken that burden of our guilt and you've placed it upon your son. You made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Christ, the the infinite one, suffered the infinite punishment that we deserve. Oh, we are sorry for our sin. Sorry for that sin which nailed Jesus to his cross. We turn from that sin today. Help us to live each day in a manner that reflects that precious cost that you have paid to free us from sin. May our every breath be praise to you. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.